Hi everyone, and welcome to the first official episode of Sustainably Speaking Beyond the Aula. We are very happy to announce that our first guest is Rihanna Johnston from Batch 24 and a very special member of XCOM, the IIIEE's Alumni Association. Rihanna specializes in EU climate and energy policy, advocating for a clean energy future and a transition away from fossil gas at the climate and energy think tank E3G. She has worked as the European Green Party's climate campaigner with Unido's Global Clean Tech Innovation Program and has campaigned for carbon pricing and 100% clean energy in Washington state. She has a master's degree in environmental management and policy from Lund University and a bachelor's in environmental policy and international studies. Welcome, Rihanna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hey, welcome. Thanks for that super nice intro. How does it feel to be back in Lund? surreal I guess uh it's just so many memories and like walking down the streets and seeing things um but it's also quite fun yeah to be back we're so glad to see you here with us and Lund is definitely happy to have you back if we can go back to what led you from the beginning to Lund in the first place I mean that's a really great question I feel like I was sort of a series of fortunate events <laughs> so I I grew up half German and half from the U.S. and spent time as a kid kind of in both places. But then sort of my formative years of undergrad and high school um, and my first jobs and work were in Washington State. And yeah, working in that vi environment was great, but I kind of also realized I wanted to get another perspective and kind of maybe go back to that European side and... Then I happened to discover the EMP program mm -hmm. and that took me back to Sweden and I'm super, super grateful. I think it was a really good choice. Now, uh, if you don't mind, let's jump to life after EMP. In March 2020, you joined the European Greens as a climate campaigner. What attracted you to European politics? Yeah, so it's, I, when I started looking for jobs after finishing the EMP program, um, I knew that I still kind of wanted to stay in Europe and I wanted to look for something here. And um, the EU level I found really interesting because I guess um, growing up between countries and then like spending time in several different European um, countries as well, I've always kind of felt maybe more like European even than specifically German. Um, so the EU level I think is a really interesting yeah, level of governance that um, I wanted to kind of explore more. Uh, Brussels is also a very international place, so it's also, I think, compared to maybe other cities, an easier place for um, expats or non-Belgians to find work. And I mean, it, it really just, if you can like make change at the EU level, and if you can get a good piece of policy passed as a directive, let's say, you can really influence the shape of so many other countries. At least, you know, that's kind of the what we tell ourselves in our day-to-day -day work. A lot of this matters. Um, but, of course, it also comes with challenges, especially that it's so far removed from maybe what people experience in their day-to-day lives, in, at least in many ways. So that kind of drew me to Brussels in the first place. You have had professional experience in the U.S. context before joining EMP, and starting your career in Brussels now. Uh, how do you think the EU's climate and energy policy more specifically compares to that of other regions around the world? I think it's probably fair to say that the EU does lead on a lot of these issues. Um, on the other hand, I think it, we also have a responsibility to lead. 
the EU obviously has a historic responsibility, as does, of course, <laughs> the US and China and, and other countries as well. Um, but the EU, I think, because we're kind of this block of countries, that that gives us sort of this bigger market share than any of those countries individually would have. Um, and I think, although there's challenges uh, with... European politics for sure um, they're sort of on a different level than um, if I look at like the US and the level of polarization and how difficult it makes that makes it to actually pass uh, like lasting climate policy um, and so I think the EU there does lead on many things like if we think about the uh, phase out of the internal combustion engine you know that was like quite difficult and imperfect in the end but still um, I think that's a huge signal that you know this big block of countries is setting for the whole globe um, and now we're actually seeing the U.S. also um, passing similar um, vehicle emission standards which will kind of push in that direction they're they're not as ambitious mm -hmm. as we want them to be as we need them to be um, but still that's that's a step forward, really. And I think we see that with other um, examples in the EU, like the carbon pricing system, for example, the ETS, emissions trading. And now we also have the carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is hotly debated on you know what the exact impact of that will be and what whether the World Trade Organization will come down and say, yeah, you can't do that. But nevertheless, <laughs> you know, it's, that, that is a... Um, yeah, quite a significant piece, and I think there's like other areas as well um, on on waste, on energy, on consumer products. We're talking about the right to repair in the EU. Mm -hmm. um, I think there aren't many other places where that's you know even being discussed. So, yeah, I, I think the silver lining is you know we're we're having those conversations. There, the action is not always where we need it to be from sort of the objective scientific standpoint, but better that than not at all right <laughs> definitely you mentioned polarization in particular in the context of the u.s do you see polarization as a threat to eu climate policy at all or do you think it's not a big issue in the eu context no i think it definitely is also something that we're seeing increasing i mean the political dynamics i think are different than in the u.s where we have only the two-party system uh, but even in the eu the role of democracy is so important and mm -hmm. we're increasingly seeing in recent elections that uh, far-right parties are winning more seats winning more uh, voices and i think that is i mean that's an issue for many reasons not just climate right say immigration women's rights lgbtq mm -hmm. so i think there's a lot of reasons why that's a problem and i'm not really sure yet how exactly that will look i think about a year from now We'll have the European elections, the next ones, and those, so we'll have elections, as I said, at the national level, basically people will vote, and then based on the shares that are garnered at a national level, that will decide what the makeup of the European Parliament is, which will then uh, kind of reflect who sits in the Commission, who has the different portfolios within the Commission. So far, the dynamic has always been that the, the Parliament has been quite a bit more progressive than the other two branches, let's say. Whereas then the council, which is the, the member state's head of government or state, has always been the one that's like the most conservative mm -hmm. and sort of like, Meh, we don't like this target 
Um, and the commission has sort of as the sort of kind of been the one walking the line between the two and like trying to propose things that are like a little bit ambitious but like not too ambitious and trying to kind of find that balance Uh, and there's a good chance that in this next election we'll see that dynamic kind of shift there's a strong risk that we'll have a much more right-leaning parliament and so the, the questions around that like, yeah, what will that mean for climate policy? How will that sort of reflect? What kind of level of polarization will we see? Um, and I think there's definitely certain issues that are probably going to be more polarizing within climate conversations than others. But even now, uh, when it comes to topics like uh, heat pumps versus boiler ban, like gas boiler bans, or um, the combustion engine phase out, or even things like nuclear for instance that are like extremely polarizing and in, in a not constructive way in the end thank you so much for sharing already a lot of knowledge i feel um, like i'm just rambling so. no 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 <laughs> I, I'm and make sure to vote if you're a european citizen make sure to vote in the next yes, parliamentary absolutely. election and there's one thing you take away go vote <laughs> But seriously, as we continue to explore this ongoing debate surrounded by energy policies or EU policies in general related to energy, the feasibility of energy transition by itself, what do you see as the most significant challenges to transitioning from fossil fuels toward a clean energy future in the EU? And if you can also highlight, if you want, your primary analysis on how can the EU elections next year affect these challenges? The thing that kind of is an overarching challenge so not just for energy but I think for most sustainability issues is that in the last couple years we've increasingly moved away from you know this battle that was a challenge but relatively straightforward where it was like we just need to convince people that we need to do something about climate change you know like that was the fight that we've been like fighting for the last 20-30 years right and that's like That was hard already, but now we're moving to actually trying to convince people about solutions and like figuring out what it is exactly that we need to do. And the challenge there is that now the complexity of those issues has just, you know, exponentially increased, right? And we're not really prepared as an environmental progressive movement to really handle that complexity and communicate where are the trade-offs and what are sort of the 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 ways that we can deal with increasing level of complexity where we start to realize more and more you know this has to happen this needs to happen and we're not very good I think at or like our institutions I think are also not set up to deal with this sort of like system scale change, right? You usually have like ministries, you know, one ministry works on energy, one ministry works on environment or climate or agriculture or whatever. And they don't really talk to each other at the level that they need to be, you know? Mm. So I think that's one big challenge is just the the complexity of it and how do we um, kind of rethink our approach to communicating and to dealing with that kind of complexity. And then, Within that, you know, there's there's genuine questions around how do we do certain things in the best way? How do we balance the trade-offs? And I think that's that's normal and that's important. But then at the same time, we're also getting a lot of what I would say are like false false attempts to sort of push this new version of denialism, which is just delay or mm. distraction through false solutions 
that are presented in a way of like, well, we're just trying to consider the complexity. And the thing is, it's really difficult, you know, for your average person to kind of be able to um, like pick that up. And it's also challenging even for the people working on those topics, right? Like, you know, like, let's be honest, it's not easy, right? Um, And I think that's a challenge that I see. Um, And then on top of that, I think in, in a way we have most of the technology and we kind of know what it is we need to do. But then it's also like just getting people to do it requires a lot of change. And I think that's also very difficult. And how do we kind of like show people or convince people um, that that change can lead to something better? Um, I think that's really difficult. And I think that there's also a lot of vested interests that don't want that change to happen. And that in turn leads to decision makers who are sort of reluctant or paralyzed or in some cases even just completely corrupt but like let's let's give them the benefit of the doubt that in the majority of the cases they're probably just like trying to do what they think is right so I think those are kind of the the challenges like tackling the complexity making sure institutions can tackle that and getting people and then politicians to kind of um be ready for for the change that and that we are already seeing in a way. What you're highlighting now is, is is extremely also relevant when it comes to literature as well. So you're bringing the practitioner by practice what's actually happening in the challenges, but also in the literature we see that institutional capacities and strong institutions is a key role enabler in the transition. And one of the things that I was just reflecting upon, the EU by itself is known for being the strong institution in tackling the climate crisis or moving forward with the rigorous actions. I firmly believe that democracy and participatory uh, democracy, involvement of communities and citizens is super key for you know the success of not just climate action, but also, let's say, system change towards a, a fairer and... Uh, more environmentally friendly but also socially fair future but those are also slow processes (laughs) like the more feedback you get the more inputs you get like the longer your process is going to be right but you need that buy-in and I think we can't get that unless we really engage people and get them on board I think an example of that right now is um, renewable energy right so in the last year the energy crisis has really put renewables at the forefront of energy security, which they really weren't until Russia attacked Ukraine. And we realized our fossil fuel sources are actually not that secure and we can't count on them. So we've seen a huge boom, especially in solar um, in the last year. And one of the things that the European Commission, for instance, has put forward was kind of an emergency regulation to shorten permitting timelines for new renewables projects. And so on the one hand, that's obviously great because if it's taking you seven years to put up solar panels, that sucks. Like that's that's unreasonable and that's not going to get us anywhere, right? But at the same time, if that now means that you can have like huge utility scale solar just bulldozing a forest to put solar panels there, then that's not what we want either, right? 
there's there's a challenge around finding the balance between how do we speed up permitting so that we can get more renewables on the grid um, and kind of get to a stronger and more resilient energy system, but how do we do it in a way where we're also balancing biodiversity, habitat, um, community interests, you know. And I, I th- do firmly believe that that is very doable. And one of the things that I think it comes back to is this coordination piece, right, that you have to have um, local administrations that have the resources to and the staff to look at permits, permit requests in a timely manner and say, like, okay, cool, we need to do an EIA and we're going to do it now in the next three months or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. On the flip side, if we even if we speed up those permitting times, but we're not involving communities, then we're going to end up seeing more court cases against these projects, which then end up slowing down the projects again. It's like not only do we need to do that, but it is like I think it's the best way to make sure that the energy transition also actually benefits communities and that they feel that benefit because that's what we've been promising as part of the clean energy transition. And if we're now not able to actually make people feel that and experience that, then I think um, that's a huge, huge loss, if not a, a setback. Since September of last year, you have joined E3G as a policy advisor for the EU's energy transition. What does a day in the life of a policy advisor in Brussels look like? E3G, they're a climate and energy think tank. So for those that aren't familiar. Um, And so we kind of do a mix between research and kind of digging into the numbers, looking at different policy files and the the data that's there or doing our own analyses with a balance of kind of the more advocacy side. So some people like to call it advocacy, some people like to call it lobbying, <laughs> you know, depending on <laughs> how you feel. Yeah, purpose. you know, <laughs> obviously advocacy is the good guys, lobbyists are the bad guys. Um, no, but so, and that kind of ends up being more of this, like talking to policymakers um, and other decision makers within kind of this EU bubble, speaking to uh, members of the European Parliament or people in the Commission, um, as well as also kind of the other stakeholders, so other groups, uh, other lobbyists, <laughs> basically, uh, as well as NGOs in in Brussels, and trying to yeah figure out how, from my perspective, how we can get a clean energy transition going. And do you often interact with other advocacy groups or lobbyists? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you have, you know, it's it's kind of crazy because like in the EU bubble, there is an advocacy slash lobby group for literally everything you could ever possibly think of. So things like Solar Power Europe, association of all the solar power uh, manufacturers and, and companies, like that's obvious. But you also have like olive oil lobbies. I mean, I don't work with them, but like that exists, you know, <laughs> like which I never realized <laughs> until one day I was walking down the street and I look over and there's like a placard on this office building, like the European Association of Olive Oil Producers or something, you know, so there's there's really like such a range <laughs> of groups in Brussels that are representing different interests. Um, obviously the NGOs as well, so Greenpeace, uh, WWF, uh, Climate Action Network Europe, and then there's also kind of the national arms of a lot of these groups. So um, most of them have member organizations then within the national context, and so there's always kind of this interplay between what's happening in the EU 
sort of being reflected, but also reflecting back on what happens at the national level. So at the end of each episode, we have two questions that are tailored to the respective thematic area of the guest. Mm -hmm. What are the top three elements you would like to see in a future energy system? The first one is probably the most obvious and it, you know, it needs to be clean <laughs> um, and, you know, reducing greenhouse gas emissions basically to as close to zero as possible. Um, going hand in hand with that are, are then also sort of the efficiency side. So reducing energy use overall, also kind of the sufficiency side of that as well. So not just being more efficient in how we use energy, but also really thinking about where we're using energy and for what. And I think that's something that really needs to be integrated into our future energy system and what we expect out of it. And I think that also goes for, you know, the material use around the inputs to that energy system. So the circularity of wind turbines, of solar panels, this kind of thing. So that's many sub points wrapped into point one. <laughs> uh, the second point, I think it's really key that that energy system is also fair and locally owned or that there is a sense of ownership in that energy system. Um, I think it would be really disappointing to me if our future energy system ended up being one where it's just as unequal as the current one where you have huge energy companies and everybody else kind of beholden to them and few kind of benefiting while everybody else sort of scrapes by. So I think um, for me, having that like energy system where communities really have a lot of buy-in, where there's a lot of distributed and decentralized sources energy that's very affordable and very low cost for people as well as like creating good jobs having that sort of as also a driver of more equality overall I think is another really important piece to me and then I guess finally that it's also a resilient and flexible system so not just in the sense that it's flexible and can manage different varying peaks of demand um, and demand side response piece like that's one piece but I think also the overall resilience that we can acknowledge that probably in 20 years our needs for the energy system are going to be really different particularly if we continue with our digitalization kind of how we heat our homes how we um, commute like all of our different kind of needs it's easy to sit here and be like hey yeah we'll all have evs and we'll all have like heat pumps but honestly like <laughs> who fucking knows right like <laughs> like you know 20 years ago 30 years ago people would have looked forward and been like heat pumps what's that like ridiculous so i think we need to just have an energy system that can also flexibly adapt to kind of the different needs that we might have also in a less positive sense with different crises and the way that our climate will also change um, and uh, what that will mean for us. So I think that that resilience piece and that adaptability, I think, is also the third important point. So Rihanna, last question. For aspiring IIII EE graduates interested in pursuing a career in energy, what advice or tips would you offer based on your own experiences in the field? Well, firstly, if you are a woman and you are interested in energy, I highly encourage you to please go into energy because we really need more ladies. <laughs> like, um, so I think I think that would be that would be one piece. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think um, I think also asking questions and like not being afraid to admit that we don't know some things and that some things might take some time to 
figure out has always I think that's something that is sort of an undervalued <laughs> like skill uh, is for people you know you're sitting in your zoom meeting and everyone's just nodding along but no one actually knows what's going on and then yeah I think trying to take this systems thinking approach I think is really key as well and I'm, that's maybe also something that the INSTE, or at least I felt that I took away from the INSTE, is trying to always think a little bit bigger than whatever the particular niche is that you're working in. Because at the end of the day, all these pieces go together, like the circularity of solar panels or the the social aspects of energy costs or, yeah, whatever it is. So I think... Yeah, kind of trying to take the time to zoom out and think about the complexity as well. I think those those would be my super <laughs> great tips. Thank you so much, Rihanna. We hope to be able to take this advice as we move forward. And it's been an honor to have your thoughts and your words on Sustainably Speaking Beyond the Ola. Thank you so much for being here with us today and for sharing your experiences and wisdom. I have personally learned so much. Uh, I hope... You too, listeners. And uh, thank you for tuning in. We can't wait to see you again in our next episode. Thanks so much.